I would like for you to take your copy of God's Word today. Join me in the book of 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. We are still in between studies before we get to the book of Ezra, and today we're looking in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to speak to you about how is your love life? How is your love life? Now listen, I'm not Dr. Phil, and I'm not going to talk about your marital relationships today and your love life with your spouse and with your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're a young person here in our church family today. But I want to talk to you about how's your love life and how do we express love to one another as the family of God, as the people of God. It's one thing to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's another thing to love our neighbor as ourself. It is one thing to be passionate about having a love for God as demonstrated in that vertical beam of the cross. That's our picture of loving God in glory, but that patabulum or that that uh, horizontal beam going out this way reflects our love for one another. So I know we all love God and we want to love God, but I want to talk to you today about your love life and how you love one another and how we reach out to one another both in our church family and outside our church family. So follow with me and I'm going to pick up the reading in 1 Peter 1 this morning kind of in, a, in the middle of a, of a thought uh, beginning in verse number 18. Uh, and Simon Peter has this to say. Of course, now he is writing to believers who have been persecuted, who have been scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And uh, notice what he says in verse 18 and following. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest <clears throat> in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit Unto King James uses the word unfeigned here. Most translations use the word sincere. Unto the sincere love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart <clears throat> fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So may God add his blessings today as we look at how is your love life. Every day, actually every day for a good number of years now, I um, have made it part of my spiritual disciplines to read the Bible, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, not just a devotional book, but I would pick up the Bible, find you a place, start reading your way through the Word of God. If you've never done that before, let me challenge you to do that. A good place to start would be in the Gospel of John. But let me just encourage you to have your daily quiet time, your daily devotional time, and spend some time reading the Word of God. I try to do that every single day. But something else that I've done for a number of years now is not every day, but several times a week, I read the Christian Post. Now, maybe you are familiar with that. Maybe you're not familiar with that. But I would also encourage you to read the Christian Post. You can get 
You can get it digitally, and it will be a source of blessing and encouragement to you as it helps keep us informed as to what's taking place in our culture. By the way, they've just produced a tremendous video that I would encourage you to go home and watch with your family. It's called Unmasking Gender Ideology, Protecting Children, Confronting Transgenderism. And I would encourage you as a family to watch that. It was produced through First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and there's a panel of of uh, religious leaders who are talking about that cultural conflict we have that's upon us today. But nonetheless, just recently, I read an article from the Christian Post entitled, Defend the Right of Christians to Adopt. And I just want to share that with you this morning. Listen carefully at this article. Jessica is a Christian and a mom of five children. A few years ago, she and her late husband were in a car crash. Her husband died on impact. After hearing a radio broadcast, Jessica knew the Lord was calling her to adopt children in need. She desired to open her home to children, specifically a sibling pair who need a family to call their own. But the state of Oregon wants to exclude her from adopting or fostering. Jessica is asking only for the chance to serve others and access a state program on equal playing field. This is something the Constitution demands, but the state of Oregon disagrees. In fact, the Oregon Department of Human Services rules state that anyone seeking to adopt, now listen carefully, church, must set aside their biblical beliefs to promote contrary views on gender and sexuality. This means parents must agree to use a child's preferred pronoun, take children to LGBT-affirming events like pride parades, and facilitate a child's access to dangerous medical interventions like sterilization and puberty blockers. But Jessica wants to lovingly care for and adopt children in need without contradicting her Christian faith. Is that too much to ask? Oregon is now refusing to allow certain Christians to adopt, while at the same time they accommodate people of different religions and cultural backgrounds and try to pair children with families who are well-suited to each other. Now that is a quote from the Christian Post that tells you and I that we are in a cultural civil war today. It is a civil war for the hearts and the minds of the next generation. And we seem to be picking up steam as we're going in the wrong direction as a culture. I want you to know that the, the persecution that first century believers faced during the time that Jesus lived and during the time the Bible was written, the persecution that those early believers faced will be the same kind of persecution that Western Christianity will face if we don't have a national revival in our land. We all remember just not too long ago that many companies, a part of the company policy was if you do not take the COVID vaccination, then you cannot be an employee of our company. In fact, I had written several people letters uh, to say that they, were, they were, uh, wanted a religious exemption for that. But what if there were no religious exemption? And corporate said to you, uh, uh, we have seen your, your posts on social media, and we see that you talk about Jesus, and we want you to know that part of our company policy says if you believe that stuff, then you can't work for this company. 
What if, uh, what if company, corporate, came down uh, to you and said, listen, we have watched your pastor's sermons online, and because he preaches certain lifestyles are sinful, you can't be associated with that pastor or that church and still be an employee of, of this corporation. What would you do if you were faced with that kind of, um, of, uh, of persecution or that kind of dilemma? Again, you may think, Pastor Darrell, that is ridiculous. That will never happen. But I'm telling you, the handwriting is on the wall, and that is where we are headed as a culture unless there is some kind of a national revival and a change of heart. Unless, now listen, it's not political, but yet it is political. Unless we look for people to, to represent us in government that have a biblical worldview versus an egocentric, humanistic worldview, we're going to continue right down this same old path. I would encourage you, when you go to the polls to vote, whenever that time comes, you're never going to find a perfect candidate. I'll never find a perfect candidate, but I want you to choose people that uh, as best as you can see value some of the principles that we are taught in the scriptures. Nonetheless, just suppose that you were facing that kind of persecution and you had to make that kind of, of a decision. What would you do? How would you deal with that? You know, our woke culture, our woke agenda for this country is glorifying everything that is wrong and vile and rude and crude, that's being glorified. But anything that is righteous and holy, that is being ridiculed and criticized. So it may not be too long when we will indeed have to face some of the same persecution that the first century believers placed. I tell you that to say, that's what Simon Peter was facing when he writes to these first century Christians. In fact, it was not going to be too long after Peter wrote these words that Nero, the uh, emperor of Rome, would order that Simon Peter be executed. And historians tell us that Simon Peter was actually crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die the same way the Lord Jesus died. But Simon Peter was writing to a group of people where the persecution had become so intense they were forced to leave their homes, quit their jobs, and scramble for their very existence. And in the face of all of that hardship, Peter encourages them to stand fast in the grace of God in times of difficulty. Because times of difficulty came then, they will come to you and I in the same words that Peter says then, I want to say to you today, stand fast in the faith and in the word of God when those difficult times come. In fact, all the way back in verse number three of this same chapter, Peter gives us the foundation upon which we're to base everything. And he said it's because we have a living hope in that we serve a Savior that has been resurrected from the grave. Listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, conquered death, hell, and the grave, in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things, everything's going to be okay as long as you live for him and walk with him and trust him and let him guide your steps. So Peter was encouraging the people of his day, stand, stand steadfast, be strong. Don't, don't go with the flow, and don't uh, be sucked into the world's agenda, but you be steadfast and know what you believe, because as the world becomes darker, Christians should shine brighter. And as the love of many in the last days, the Bible says, will grow cold, the love of a Christian person should grow stronger and hotter and more fervently. So I want to ask you today, how is your love life? Right here in the 21st century, right here in 2023, post-enlightenment, how is your love life? How do you love 
and extend your love and express your love to other people. Well, let's begin to look at this, and I'm just going to focus on two verses this morning from the, the larger section that I read. Look in verse number 22. Notice he says, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto the sincere love of the brethren, he says, see that you love one another. Now, I want you to circle that phrase there, love one another. It's a singular imperative command, love one another. In other words, it's not passive It is not something that we just observe. It is not something that we just watch, not something that we expect other people to do, but it is an imperative command. Peter says, love one another. Now, it's not a love that is just a brotherly love, where we get our word Philadelphia. It is is a love that is an agape kind of a love. It is a a, a self-sacrificing, unselfish Genuine love, if we're going to love like Christ and love one another, it is with a self-sacrificing agape kind of love. One author writes about love this way. He says, what does love even mean? And he says, love is a junk drawer. We dump all sorts of ideas into it just because we don't have anywhere else to put them. I love God. I love fish tacos, which, by the way, who would eat a fish taco? But I guess there are people who like fish tacos. He goes on to write, see the problem? The way we use the word is so broad, so generic, that I'm not sure we understand it anymore. How should we define love? To some, love is tolerance. I hear this all the time in my city. The idea is that rather than judge people, we should love them. And what people mean is that we should not call out something that's wrong. After all, as long as it's not hurting anybody, who are we to judge? And while that sounds nice and forward and progressive, it does not work. The opposite of love is not hate, it is apathy. And there's a fine line between tolerance and apathy. To many of us, love is passion for a thing. It is the word we call on to conjure up our feelings of affection. We love hiking Or we love the new record by a particular band that you've never heard of. Or we love chips and guacamole. When we aim at the word, when we aim the word at people, we usually mean the exact same thing. When we say we love someone, we mean we have deep feelings of affection because they make us feel alive all over again. Adventurous, brave, happy. Love, by this definition... Is pure, unfiltered emotion. And your role in love is passive. It's something that happens to you. Think of the phrase, fall in love. It's like tripping over a rock or a curb, and it's fantastic, but there is a dark underbelly to feeling this kind of romantic love. If we fall into it, we can fall out of it. That's what he is saying. So if it is love is just simply based on emotions, Or love says, I love you because you're doing something for me. I'm getting something in return. You are working for me. You make me feel a certain way. If that is true love, if that is love, and that's what the world says it is, then as you fall into that, it stands to reason that when those things stop happening, when you no longer feel like you're getting something out of it, then you fall out of love. That's where we are in our world today and in our culture today. It is a capricious changing, superficial emotion that we call love. But that's not true agape love. 
Agape love models what Jesus demonstrated for us. Love is self-sacrificing. We do it not because we feel like it or even because we want to. We do it because it becomes part of who we are. Let me illustrate. Those of you who are moms, well, moms and dads, but certainly moms, can relate to this. Uh, You remember what it was like when your baby would get up in the middle of the night crying because uh, the diaper had been soiled or they were hungry, and uh, you were sleeping so well, and as soon as you hear the baby cry, your eyes come open and you stagger into the baby's room. And because you love that baby, it's not because you feel like doing this, but because you love that child so much, you take them and you change their diaper, you get them something to eat, you rock them back to sleep, and you give them that sense of security. That is self-sacrificing kind of love. A love that is simply emotional would say, I'm too tired, I'm just going to let the baby cry it out, let him stay in that soiled diaper and be hungry until I feel like getting up. We would never do that, of course not. True love, real love, genuine love, is a self-sacrifice in love, not just for our children, but it is for others to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now listen, we all have work to do when it comes to loving each other with that kind of passion. To love one another as Christ has loved us. Let me give you, or actually we'll just uncover them. Peter's already given them to us. Three of these attitudes of love that I believe are very important for us today. Three attitudes. The first one, and and all three of these are part of the whole and fall under that umbrella of loving one another, okay? So this is kind of a subset of loving one another. How do we do that? First of all, I want you to jot down, it is to be a sincere love. I already pointed this out to you, but I want to go back and look at it again. In verse 22, notice he says, Um, seeing that you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto, and again, King James uses this word, unfeigned love of the brethren. Most translations use the word now, sincere. Sincere. There is a sincerity in our love. It is a word that literally means without hypocrisy. Some have suggested that the word means sun-tested. In the first century, um, dishonest pottery uh, vendors would make pottery that if they fired it too quickly or maybe too, too hot, the pottery would develop a hairline crack. And maybe you buy a a vessel that you think you're going to bring home and it's going to hold water, but it's got this hairline crack in it. Or you buy some plates or something that you're going to use for your family and they have these hairline cracks in it. You would never buy that. So what these dishonest pottery dealers would do is they would fill those hairline cracks with wax. And uh, you couldn't tell it when you bought that kind of pottery until you got it home. And when you got it home and you tried to use it, those, those uh, vessels wouldn't hold water, and, and they would leak. So what the consumer began to do is what was called sun-tested. They would pick up the piece of pottery, and they would hold it up to the sun, and as the sunlight would come through that, it would reveal if there were any cracks that had been filled in by wax. That's where we get our word sincerely, sun-tested, without cracks, without hypocrisy. When you sign a letter and you say sincerely so-and-so, what you're saying is your life is without wax, that you really mean what you've had to say, that you're really intentional about what you've had to say. So when the Lord talks about our love, he said our love for one another is not to be fake. 
It is not to be phony, but it is to be sun-tested, genuine, without hypocrisy, real. It is a love that gives even if you don't get anything in return. It is a love that, again, that is not manufactured, but it is an overflow or a byproduct of living with the Lord. That's why he says there in verse 22, seeing you have purified in your souls and obeying the truth. And as the truth of God's word gets in us, how is that fleshed out among us? It is fleshed out among us by how we sincerely, genuinely love one another. It's not a fake love, not a pseudo love that says I love you because. It's just a sincere, genuine love. Just before Jesus would go to the cross, he was sitting in the upper room with his disciples, and as he looks across the table, and he already knows what every one of these men are going to face. Judas, in fact, had already gotten up and walked out into the night to sell Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And Jesus knew what each one of these men would face And he said to them that night at the Last Supper, just hours before he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, he looked into the faces of every one of them, and I can just see them lined up there, Peter and and, and Matthew and and, uh, Simon, uh, Simon the Zealot, all of them who were there among the table with him. And Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Why did he say that's a new commandment? Because no one ever loved like Jesus loved. No one had that kind of a self-sacrificial kind of a love. So he says to his men, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another even as I have loved you. In his private life, Jesus demonstrated great love for his men as he put a towel around his waist and as he bent down and he washed their feet. In his public ministry, he demonstrated great love for the world. When he goes to the cross and he dies on Calvary's cross, what he's doing is is giving us an illustration of what self-sacrificial love really does look like. A new commandment I give to you? That you would love one another? The way that I have loved you. You know, listen, we live in a cruel world, don't we? We live in a world where you go to the office tomorrow and there's going to be folk you're working with who is slicing and dicing other people that you work with. You go to the office tomorrow or to the plant and you will hear people complain about somebody else or talk about stories about somebody else's life. We call that gossip. By the way, that's still a sin last time I read the Bible. Amen, church? And you just find yourself, if you're not careful, getting sucked into the drama that's being played out in the, in the office pool or in the break room or wherever you might be, and you find yourself part of that. Is that really love like Jesus would love one another? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And don't let yourself be pulled into that and become part of that. It's a love that we're to have that is self-sacrificial. Have you ever thought about all the differences in the personalities of Jesus' disciples? In fact, I think they're probably representative of all of us. For example, Jesus was saying that night around that table, Hey, Simon Peter, I know you are impulsive. 
I know you react quickly. I know you can be hot-tempered. And John, I know you're just the opposite. John, you're reflective. You are patient. You are loving. And I know you two men are as different as night and day. But this new commandment I give you, Peter and John, I want you to love one another just as I've loved you. Matthew, I remember what it was like when I came by the tax collector's office that day and asked you to follow me and watched you close your tax ledgers and get up and follow me. And I know that you worked for the Roman government even though you were a Jewish man whose name was Levi from the tribe of the Levites. And I know that you had kind of sold your soul to the Roman government uh, to become an extortioner and a tax collector for the Roman government. So Simon the Zealot, I know that you hate the Roman government and you want to see it overthrown. And you and Matthew and your lives have been world apart. But Matthew and Simon, I want you to love each other just as I have loved you. Thomas, I know you're given to doubt. Thomas, I know that you just don't take things on face value. And Andrew, I know you're intellectual and you ask a lot of questions. And you two men are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. But I want you to love each other just as I've loved you. Holland Park, some may be in the senior adult years of their lives and some may just be starting out. Totally different, totally different interests. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Highland Park, one from one background, one from another background. One may be, one may be struggling financially, another may be set for life. Worlds apart, Jesus said, love one another, even as I have loved you. Love one another. I mentioned to you earlier that the Bible says, in fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, talking about the last days. And he says, one of the characteristics of the last days is that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. Because we live in such a hurtful, hateful, rebellious world. And our culture is primarily focused on brotherly love, not God's love. Not that agape love, the purest, deepest kind of love. Let me give you some Bible verses about what love really is, sincere love really is. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Listen, while we're here, aren't you glad that God doesn't love us one day and take it back the next day? But His love is eternal for us, steadfast, unchanging. Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 119, 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me, According to your promise. Isaiah 38, 17. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Hosea 14, 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Did you hear that? What manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. That phrase there, manner of, what manner of? Literally means out of this world. That God gives us this out of the world love to love one another. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. So that's a sincere love. Let me give you the second one. Again, King James used the word unfeigned or sincere. Look at the next one, and that is to be a passionate love. Now, if you carry the King James, go all the way to the end of verse 22 and look at the word fervently. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. A synonym for fervently would be passionately. So how is your love life? Is it sincere toward others? You genuinely have a concern, a love, an interest in others. How is your love life? Is it sincere Secondly, is it passionate or fervent? Listen, that word fervent, in the Greek, it's extenos. Here's what it means. It means to stretch out. To love something with passion means you you stretch out. You see the word extension or the word extend. So he says to you and I, I give you this new commandment, that you love, that you stretch out, that you extend, that you are passionate or fervent or hot in your love for one another. My, uh, my youngest son, Daniel, one of his profs, it may have been some of the other my boys', my boys uh, profs at, at Liberty University, but my youngest son in particular because of his major, one of his professors was a man by the name of Dr. David Horton. And he's still up there at Liberty teaching in exercise science and has been teaching up there for probably close to 40 years. And uh, Dr. Horton is a man who loves God and, uh, and uh, he is an extreme ultra-marathon runner. If you've never seen the movie about his life, actually Liberty produced it just a few years ago. It's called Extraordinary. I would encourage you to watch it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, good, it's a good movie. But it's a movie about Dr. Horton's running passion, and how even though, now listen, he had open heart surgery, and if I understand it correctly, I believe, I believe it was like eight bypasses, I didn't even know you could have that many bypasses, but it was some kind of a, uh, of a heart condition that I believe was congenital. So anyway, after all that he had, had gone through, um, he loved running, he was passionate about running. In fact, he, after his heart surgery, set off on a 3,000-mile run across America. Yeah, 3,000 miles. Listen, I told someone the other day, I wish I'd like to run. But if you see me running, you'll know there's a dog chasing me or something. <laughs> I just don't care for that. But this guy ran for 3,000 miles across America. It is said that he has enough miles logged that it would circle the globe four and a half times. Can you imagine that? He holds the speed records for the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. Now, can you imagine having that kind of passion where you would so discipline yourself for that that you would stretch yourself to those kind of limits because it's something that you love to do? Listen to some of his favorite sayings. Take one day at a time. The journey is more important than the destination. Accept the day as it comes. Keep making forward progress. 
You can do more than you think you can do. Nothing worthwhile ever comes without hard work. When things are easy, a person doesn't really learn about themselves. It's what a person does at the moment of his greatest struggle that shows him who he really is. One of God's greatest miracles is to enable ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And finally, the list is longer, but finally for our purposes today, you must act as if it is impossible to fail. You know what he is saying there? I'm not just running the races, but it's a metaphor for how I run the race of life. It is a metaphor for how Paul said, he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course, my, my, my run, my journey, and I have kept the faith. And he says, um, Dr. Horton says, it's a metaphor for his life and how in all of life you're kind of stretched out. So when the Bible says to you and I that we are to love one another fervently, listen, you would say and I would say, sometimes loving people is a stretch, Right? Because it's not easy to love everybody. It's just not. It's not easy to love everybody. We, we, we know that we should, but sometimes that doesn't mean that it's easy. And it's a stretch. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to say no to self. That would give us all the reasons not to extend love. And say yes to the agape love of God who says, I want you to love one another with a stretched out, kind of love, one that you're not concerned about in, being inconvenienced, one that you're not concerned about getting repaid or that you've got somebody that owes you something, but no, just be self-sacrificing in your love and be passionate and love one another with a passion. We're commanded to do that, to love each other, not to hate each other. Sincere love, a passionate love. Let me give you the third one. Notice what he says in verse number 22. You see an intentional love. Seeing that you have purified your souls, now he follows this same theme, in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto sincere love of the brethren. See that you love one another, the last word is fervently or stretched out. Go back and pick up those two words, with a pure heart. I call that intentional. Love one another with great intentionality. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is our great example about how to love one another. He loved with a clean heart, a heart that was unblameless, a heart that was unstained by guilt. All of his motives were pure. All of his actions were above reproach. He was humble in his service and he was holy in his walk. He was generous in his giving. He was free with his forgiveness. And in every way, he was the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley and the bride and the morning star. He loved with a pure heart. What did he say on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is, blessed are those who are intentional about how they stretch themselves out to demonstrate love to one another. Paul said 
that the love of Christ compels me. Meaning that is a love that it will not let go. Listen, if you live long enough, if you live long enough, you will encounter people who will not love you back even when you try to extend love. If you live long enough, you will find that there are times that love has to be a one-way street. And you show love because God tells us to show love and instructs us to show love. And we become intentional about that, not because we're trying to keep a rule, but because God has so worked in our lives that it's the natural byproduct or outflow of our life to intentionally demonstrate love. Listen, anybody can get even. Anybody can hurl insults. Anybody can throw around criticisms. Anybody can talk under the breath about other people. But the Lord says, love intentionally. Listen, when God chose to redeem the world, he was intentional about that. When Jesus came to pay the sin debt of the world, he was intentional about that. When we experience all kinds of trials and tribulations, listen, isn't it encouraging to know that we're part of a family that is so intentional about loving each other that we support each other when those trials come? That we literally, genuinely, sincerely, and fervently pray for each other. I've often thought, I don't know how in the world people who don't have a church family, how they make it through life. (laughs) They don't know what they're missing, do they, church? But somebody in our church family that's going through struggles, going through a hard time, you know, if you're like me, if you're like me, and I'll just be transparent with you, sometimes I feel inadequate because I want to be able to step into the situation that somebody's experiencing that's causing them grief, and I want to be able to fix it. Sometimes I can't fix it. Sometimes it's not fixable. But I've discovered over the years, if you just extend love... Even though you can't fix the problems, most of the time people respond to that. And when you send cards and you send phone calls and texts and you reach out to people who are hurting, I want you to know, church, it just means the world to them. I hear it all the time. So-and-so sent me a card or so-and-so reached out to me or so-and-so brought food over to my home or so-and-so did this or did that. And even though we can't take all the broken pieces and put them back together and fix that broken situation in that person's life, I want you to know true, intentional, fervent, stretched out, sincere love makes all the difference in the world. That's the love that Christ leaves us with. Having a church family helps you move forward when the load gets heavy. Tertullian lived in the third century, and it was also a time when Christians faced great persecution. Listen to what he wrote about how unbelievers viewed Christians, all right? Now listen to what he said. This is in the third century when he wrote about how unbelievers viewed Christians. Quote, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are even ready to die one for another. And one unbeliever said this about Christians, they love one another almost before 
they even know one another. And isn't that true? With intentional, sincere, passionate love, because that comes not generated from us, but from the Savior. Let me show you how we know that. Peter tells us, is it really possible to have sincere love, passionate love? Is it really possible to have that kind of love for one for another, intentional love? Yes, because look at what he says if you'll go to verse 23. Here's where it rests upon. Being born again, meaning if you're a Christian, if you're saved, then you will have that passionate, intentional, sincere love. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Listen, our flesh does not want to love passionately with agape love. Our flesh is selfish, and we want what we want. Our flesh does not want to love sincerely and genuinely or intentionally. Our flesh says, I want the attention to be heaped on me. I want someone to serve me. I want somebody to do something for me. I want this and I want that. And that's, that's the way our flesh is. And listen, if you feed the flesh, it becomes even more hungry. <laughs> and the appetite grows. And the more you feed that, the more you have to feed that. And the less satisfied that person will be. So, so genuine love is the byproduct of being born again. Of having the life of Christ that lives through us. So it's a, it's a contrast between the quality of life, he says, that you're born again, not of seed that perishes and dies, but of seed that lasts forever. Now notice, look in verse number 24 and 25, and he actually gives us a quote from Isaiah 40. Look in verse 24. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, and falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now why in the world would he quote Isaiah 40? Let's, let, me just, let me just give you that quote, all right? Isaiah 40 says this. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodness is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Why would Peter quote Isaiah? Well, you remember the context. What's Peter's audience facing? Great persecution. They've left their jobs, they've left their homes, they've left their places of business. And they've been scattered. And he's writing to them about holding on to great faith in difficult times. And he reaches back there to Isaiah chapter 40 and picks up a similar scene. Isaiah chapter 40, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is warning the people that Babylonian captivity is coming. And he talks about that and he talks about that. And then in chapter 40, he, he says he gives them great comfort to say, even though this Babylonian captivity is going to come and you're going to be exiled from your homeland, he said, I want you to take heart. Because just as the grass of the field withers away, he's, he's, he's using that as analogy for the life of mankind. They were only here for a short time. And as the grass fades away, as the flower fades, as the grass is burned up one day and it's gone, he said, what will last forever is the Word of God. 
So hold on to God's promises. Hold on to God's truths. And hold on to his teachings that will equip you and strengthen you during these very, very hard times. So Peter goes back to Isaiah 40. He brings that to his contemporary listeners. And he is saying, listen, you're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that is with a sincere love. With a passionate love. With an intentional love. And be stretched out one for another. And you do that. By holding on to what God and His Word has to say. Here's how I want to. Here's how I want to close this message this morning. <clears throat> when we talk about how's your love life, how's your love life? Maybe God's put His finger uh, on your on a nerve of your heart about how you can demonstrate love to someone in a more tangible, practical way. Maybe it's someone that um, that is a person that's hard for you to love. I want to challenge you today. Reach out and demonstrate that love. Now, what I want to do is I just want you to listen to what the Bible says about love. And only you can answer the question, how's your love life? Listen to what the Bible says about it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... And have not love, I am a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. It is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. But true love, listen, rejoices in the truth. True love, listen, sincere, passionate, stretched out, intentional love, believes all things, hopes all things, Endures all things. Listen, I'll buy your lunch if you can tell me what the next three words of that text is. No, I really won't because I don't know who may take you up on that. <laughs> the next three words says, love never, what's the next word? Fails. Love never fails. You know, we get the impression, oh, no, it's just sharp elbows. That's how I get my way to the top. No, love never fails. Let me keep reading what Paul writes about it. Where there are prophecies, they'll fail, and tongues, they'll cease. Where there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, and then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, and thought as a child. But when I came a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am known, and now abides faith, hope, and love. 
But the greatest of these is love. <clears throat> Billy Graham died a few years ago. <clears throat> you know, his favorite verse was from John 14 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. <clears throat> and probably his last act of unselfish, unconditional love was that he asked his coffin, that his coffin be made by prisoners at an Angola prison. Men who were serving hard time for Lord only knows what kind of crimes that they may have committed. And he wanted those men who may feel like they have been thrown away from society to know that there's a God who with great intentionality and great sincerity so loved the world that he stretched out his son on the cross of Calvary and allowed nails to be driven in his hands and his feet so that whosoever will could come and drink of the water of life freely. I'm telling you, we serve a marvelous Savior, a wonderful Lord who loves you with an everlasting love. And now he says to us, this is the new commandment. As I've loved you, you go do that for somebody else. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, it is truly humbling when we read about and think about and preach about your amazing love for us. <clears throat> we accept that and we appreciate that. But sometimes, God, it's hard to give that away. It's hard to be able to find the avenues to do it or even to, to find the own love in our hearts to do that. But God, you've called us and you expect us to do that. Love never fails. May that ring true in the lives of those who may be struggling in relationships right now. May it ring true with those who are trying to reconcile a difficult past. May it ring true in those, Lord, who don't know how to move forward for the future. That love never fails. Take this invitation now. Use it to draw people to you, God. Everybody that you called, you call publicly. And maybe today someone wants to come and make their public decision to follow Jesus. I pray they would come during this invitation. Maybe others want to unite with our church family. Just take this service, this invitation, and draw people to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.